Good morning. Good morning. We have a couple of announcements today for you. First of all, happy Father's Day to all you, and I quote, amazing fathers out there. Evening service is canceled for the next couple of weeks. We will resume it back again on July 10th, and our communion service will be on July 3rd. I see that uh, Ken and Gary are back from the Carolinas. Welcome back. Gary, you're looking in uh, great physical shape and health. I'm glad to have you back with us again. Uh, do we have any, uh, Laura? Father's Day gift on the, on the foyer table there. Okay. What is that, deodorant or <laughs> air freshener or something that would be appropriate for us amazing dads? <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Any, uh, any other prayer requests or comments or... Glad, like I said, glad to have you back with us. And I know it was a difficult thing to go through and a struggle, but uh, we do serve an awesome God, don't we? Sure do. Amen. Okay, our uh, scripture for meditation today is actually a responsive reading from uh, the book of Psalm. And that's going to be page 793 in your Trinity, Trinity hymnals. arrive to that, would you please stand with us? Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advanced against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. 
Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Through my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's remain standing for opening prayer. George, would you kindly lead us this morning? Please remain standing for opening hymn. Joe, I understand you're leading songs today. Thank you very much. Yep, number two in the brown hymnal. Yes.
Again, like I said, uh, there's no congregational hymn today, but uh, we'll take this few minutes uh, to maybe uh, offer what the Lord's been doing for me in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we had uh, the gracious testimony from Gary here a couple of minutes ago. What's God doing in your lives as of today? Good or maybe not so good? If it's not so good, we can take it to prayer. If it's good, we'll praise you. Terry? For myself, on this Father's Day, it's an adjustment for me. It's uh, having been blessed with five sons uh, to try and raise uh, to various degrees of results and success, uh, aided mostly with my wife and we had our struggles all of you know that but uh, Father's Day in particular was one day where she did encourage me and embrace me and uh, give me the respect uh, that most fathers deserve and for that I'm most grateful and again it is going to be an adjustment for me personally as it is for some of the men in this church as well that have lost their wives. I'm told that uh, it doesn't matter how long it's been since you've lost a loved one or a spouse. The hole is always going to be there. I guess it's how we fill that hole is what matters. And I covet your prayers that uh, the Lord will sustain me give me the blessings that uh, of myself I, I certainly don't deserve but his providence and grace will sustain me George yeah this morning uh, listening to talk news they were talking uh, several of the program reports were uh, <coughs> dealing with uh, fatherhood and so on and so forth and two black guys on there 
able to watch a little Newsmax this morning, and uh, one of the ladies on there had her, had her father, her name is Jenna Ellis. She was a uh, part of the council for the White House during the Trump administration, and uh, they interviewed her father, and her father is an elder in his church, and he said it was his greatest joy and responsibility to be a leader in the family, and he said he, he cited uh, Proverbs 21, raise up your child in the way of the Lord and the things of the Lord, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And that's, a, I think, a fundamental uh, plan for, for all men to do this, to be consistent in your living. And, uh, and men, we all admit, we, we, we fail at it every day. And uh, it seems like I, I have made it a habit of failing at it at times. But God has seen me through all this. He's seen all of you through this thus far. And I, it is my prayer for all of us men and us women uh, with memberships here that uh, we would continue on in the way we were we were raised as, as children you know, in, in Proverbs. So, any other comments? Well, I thank you folks for the input on that. Again, I thank you for your prayers and continue to cover them as a man and as a father. If you will uh, take your hymn, not your hymnals, but your, your Bibles out. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 49 uh, will be our scripture reading for this morning. We'll begin at Genesis 49 verse 28 and end up in Genesis 50 verse 14. That'll be page 84 in your pew Bibles. And when you arrive at that, please uh, stand with us. <coughs> Genesis 49 verses 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, in Canaan, which Abraham brought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with, with the field. There Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were buried. There Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the, phys the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days 
for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go off and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignities of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning and the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as they had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father Joseph, he returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Father in heaven, Continue on in our service this hour. We pray that you would add your blessing to this holy and inspired reading. You would touch the hearts of the lost and strengthen the hearts of those in your grasp. In the name of Christ, amen. Please remain standing. Please take your brown hymnal and turn to 399. 
Scripture reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 49. Our last study showed that Joseph brought his two Egyptian-born sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob to receive the blessing, his blessing, before he died. He intended that Jacob would give the preferred blessing to Manasseh, the oldest of the two brothers, and he even arranged his son directly in front of Jacob's right hand so that all Jacob had to do to pronounce the blessing was to extend his hand forward and place it on the head of Manasseh. But Jacob refused to follow this protocol. He crossed his arms, making his right hand to lay on the head of Ephraim, not Manasseh, and Joseph protested, but to no avail. Jacob himself had been the recipient of God's blessing 
as the younger one, you'll remember, over his brother Esau, the older one. So breaking a protocol shows that God's will runs sometimes contrary to the traditions of men. And he's going to have his will accomplished, not simply traditions. That should be a warning to us that while there are good traditions, there are also bad traditions. And you don't just go with the status quo. You have to think through, is this biblical? Is this the right way to go? We learned as well that because Joseph's two sons were Egyptian-born, they had no claim on God's promises to Israel. So, Jacob adopted them both and established a half-tribe for Ephraim, another half-tribe for Manasseh, making one whole tribe. Levi received the land allotted from Jacob. No land, he didn't get any land, only cities and pasture land. So the tribal count remained at 12. And the Lord worked that all out. Well, today's message is number 52 in this series on the, on the patriarchs. And with that, we're going to close. And next week, begin a series in the New Testament. But today's message deals with the death of Jacob and Joseph. As we come, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's always precious to us. Sometimes it rebukes us. Sometimes it encourages us. Sometimes it warns us. Whatever the task is that you want accomplished in our hearts and lives to make us living proof of Christian faith, do your work in our hearts today. We don't care what it is. If it's what you want for us, then do your work and we'll praise you for the results. We do know this about studying your word. It's not just to be a, um, a lesson in history. It's not to be simply a matter of gaining some new facts, but it is to change us. We study your word so it changes us and makes us more like God, more like Christ. And to that end, we pray this morning and every Lord's Day, thinking that if you will meet with us today and if you will use your word like the sword that it is to cut and convict and to heal, then, Lord, we will have been blessed immensely by our being here today. Bless those that couldn't be with us today and bring them safely back. We have a number of families on vacation, Lord, and we ask for journey mercies for them. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, and moving also into a little bit of chapter 50. And we're considering the death of Jacob and Joseph. Jacob's death is referred to in 49, verse 29. As we noted in previous studies, many of these Old Testament patriarchs had a sense of their destiny, and they knew when they were about to die. This is no less the case with Jacob. He says, 
I'm about to be gathered to my people. And that expression, gathered to my people, is a Hebraism, that is a figure of speech in Hebrew, meaning I am about to die. Wow. What would you do if God showed you that by next Sunday, you would be dead? You would have seven days to instruct your family on what they were to do with your remains. You would have seven days to discuss your wishes concerning the family inheritance. You would have seven days to say your goodbyes to those you love. An awful lot could be crammed into a week of living. In the case of these patriarchs, they receive some kind of inner enlightenment from God. But has it not also been the case that people who have been ailing for a length of time develop a sense of their, their final hours? Now, they cannot pinpoint the day or the hour, but they sense that it is soon um, just around the corner, maybe. They talk about living on borrowed time. For others, like my father, death is imminent, it is sudden, it is quick. There's no warning, no telltale sign. Just one moment, alive and well, and the next moment, dropped on the floor, dead and gone. What a way to go. And you might think, but your dad was a hundred years old. Yeah, he was. Surely that was a sign. Well, not at all, because he was strong physically. I mean, if we did one of these, hand, you know how men do this business where they grab the hands at the table and they do an arm wrestling type of thing. hundred years old, my dad could beat me. Yeah. Well, he had worked hard all of his life. He had his own trash route. That's heavy lifting, moving all the time. So he was strong physically. He was strong mentally. He read and studied the scriptures all the time. Praise God. He was also strong spiritually. He was like Moses in his death, in which the Bible says, Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Deuteronomy 47, 34, verse 7. How then did Moses die if he was so healthy? Ever think about that? But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters of the desert of Zin, 
Both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. Chapter 27, verse 12 and following. And what was their sin? They struck the rock twice, no less, instead of speaking to it. And that rock represented Christ. And God is chastising them for that. Because the poor example they set for all of Israel. Brethren, there are many ways to die. Many dying days, many different means. The hymn writer George A. Young wrote the hymn, God Leads Us Along. And this is what he wrote. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. And when we ask, and to where is God leading his people, he writes in the last verse of the hymn, Away from the mire, away from the clay, God leads his dear children along. Away up in glory, eternity's day, God leads his dear children along. That's where they're going. After Jacob had given Joseph instruction to his sons, chapter 49, verse 33 says, He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. As Joseph mourned, he instructed the physicians of Egypt to embalm his father, which took a full 40 days. Chapter 50, verse 3. I didn't know it until I read it. But embalming took 40 days to accomplish that. Wow. Simultaneously, the entire Egyptian community mourned for Jacob 70 days. And when Jacob's body was embalmed, Joseph sought and received permission from Pharaoh to leave Egypt to transport Jacob's remains back to Canaan, where he would be buried in the cave that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites as a burial site. Chapter 49, verse 30. And observe the entourage that accompanied them. Verse 7 and following. So Joseph went up to bury his father, all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Wow. Besides all the members of Joseph's household, and his brothers, and those belonging to his father's household, only their children, only their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. And when they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, that would be on the west side of the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. Genesis 50, 
verse 7 through 10. And verse 14 says, <clears throat> After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, all of this being true, <clears throat> there was a residual effect of the whole burial, this whole cemetery experience. And what it was, was this. It awakened fear in Joseph's brothers. Oh. Verse 15 and following. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, Jacob, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Genesis 50, verse 15 through 18. Whether Jacob actually made this request of Joseph is doubtful. This is just the fear of his brothers looking for... Uh, some way out of a dilemma of their own making. But real or imaginary, it is fair to say that Joseph's brothers were terrified of what he might do to them for their past sins and wrongs done to him. That's the way the world thinks. I did so and so bad, so boy, if he gets the opportunity. He's going to come back on me. I actually heard our president, President Trump, say when someone hits me, I hit him back hard double. That's the way the world thinks. The brothers seem to have attributed their safety in Egypt to their father's influence with Joseph. You know, dad's alive. We're, we're okay. Dad's alive. But now that Jacob is dead, they expect Joseph to retaliate by using all of his power to do them great harm. And he is all-powerful. He is vice-regent of Egypt. But we read that Joseph wept. Verse 17. Why would he weep? Well, many reasons, but perhaps the most obvious is they did not believe his words. What words? Verse 7 and following. 
God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. In other words, I have no intention of doing you harm because God is the one who brought me to Egypt for his purpose of salvation. I didn't come here to kill you. I came here to save you. Think of it. If someone whom you have wronged tells you that you are forgiven, if you don't believe them, you will always be suspicious that they mean to do you harm when the opportunity presents itself. That's Joseph's guilt-stricken brothers. They're the ones having the problem. I don't know what you can do to assure people that they are forgiven other than to treat them once again as a friend and to seek their welfare with all the kindness and love that you can display. But Joseph's brothers didn't do that. Instead, verse 18 tells us, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Genesis 50, verse 18. This is a hard and fearful way to live. When you take a prove-it-to-me attitude towards someone who genuinely wants to make amends with you, it is the equivalent of saying to them, I don't believe you. What I did to you was so bad that no one could forgive that. But you know, for a real believer, for a real believer, this is not an option. And we know it's not an option. Jesus taught us all to pray this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa. Matthew 6, verse 12 and 12. I think it's pretty scary to think that God's forgiveness of our sins is wedded to our forgiveness or lack thereof of a brother or sister who sins against us. I think that's scary. And it is scary because we are so mean-spirited at times that we might say, I will never forgive you as long as I live for what you've done. 
Mm. Brethren, did you know that never is a long time? But eternity in hell is even longer. Forgiveness means forgetting and moving on, moving past the sin and back into the cordial relationship that was once there. We are to pattern ourselves after Jesus. What if he took the posture? Your sin towards me hurt me so bad and it was so terrible. I will never forgive you. You know, if that were true, we would all be doomed. Forgiveness of others, like all the righteous commands of God, is a product of His grace. You either have it or you don't. But if you don't, even eventually, then you are devoid of God's grace, and that is a spoonful of vinegar that you do not want to taste. Joseph's brothers were yet to learn this. To help them, we note Joseph's reassuring love. My, what a great example of Christ. What do you do when the person seeking forgiveness will not take yes for an answer? I mean, fear, fear is so powerful and oftentimes debilitating that it keeps us from change, even righteous change. There are two types of fear. One is sinful, and the other is righteous. Sinful fear has to do with contemplation of the consequences of our sins or the sins of others toward us that will be harmful. When Esau was on his way with his 400 men to a reunion with Jacob, his estranged brother, we hear Jacob pray to God. Here's his prayer. I read it for you. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children, his wives and their children. Genesis 32, verse 11. I am afraid. Okay, why is Jacob afraid? Well, because 20 years earlier, Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright blessing, and as a result, Esau vowed to kill him, causing Jacob to flee to Canaan in the first place. Fear rooted in his own sin of lies and deception. I mean, and the other thing is, Esau is coming with 400 men. Do you need 400 men to say, I came up from Egypt so I could say hi. We haven't seen each other in a long time. Maybe we could have dinner together. No. He's sick and he's coming up. He's going to lay me low. 
And not only me, but my wife and children and everything I own. At the exodus with all of the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's charioteers closing in behind them to block any avenue of retreat, we are told as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Exodus 14 verse 10. And Moses' response was this. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Exodus 14, verse 13. What a wonderful counsel for Moses. You know, sometimes the best thing to say to people who are all afraid, the best thing to say to them is, Stop it! Stop it right now! God is in control. Trust Him. The psalmist puts it this way. When I am afraid. Now notice that's an admission. The psalmist. David. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. He's talking to God. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, eager to take my life. Record my lament, God. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back. When I call for help, by this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in the God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's Psalm 56. And here David's fear has to do not with his own sin, but the sins of his enemies who want to do him in. And he does the right thing by turning to God for deliverance. Now there is sinful fear. Fear for my own sin, consequences thereof. But also the sins of others that are set to do me harm. We live in a hostile world. Christians are not loved by the people of the world. 
that they know that we're really believers in what we stand for. Now, over this kind of fear, there is what I am calling righteous fear. That's the fear of God, his goodness, his justice, his power, his glory, all that he is and can be as he relates to me as his child and family member. This, this is a comforting fear. It's the same fear. A courageous fear. Because it's founded upon a relationship in which my sin, which is the root of my sinful fear, has been dealt with thoroughly and without revocation by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sin is no longer a barrier to my relationship with God, not a harbinger of doom, and contemplating life now or life hereafter. Isaiah put it this way. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arms rule for him. See, his reward is with him. His redemption accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah 40, verse 9 and follow. Jesus' promise to his disciples was this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid John 14 verse 27 so there is sinful fear based on my disobedience to God or the sinful intent of others who are against me but there is also a righteous fear wherein we honor God for who and what he is and what he has done and will do for those that he loves. Now which fear do you suppose Joseph's brothers exhibited after their father Jacob was gone when they went to Joseph, fell at his feet, and declared, We are your slaves. Verse 18. Context tells us. They were fearful of reprisals from Joseph for all the wrongs we did to him. Verse 15. So this is a sinful fear. It's interesting too. They, they, they didn't forget all the years passed. But they didn't forget how they treated their brother. 
Oh boy, now we're going to get it. Dad's dead. And Joseph is this, um, how did he get this? He's the vice regent of Egypt. We are in deep, deep trouble. Well, what a relief it must have been to hear Joseph respond, verse 19, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Translation, it's not my place to play God and judge you, Joseph is saying. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good and to accomplish what is now being done. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What a type of Christ. Think about it. Brothers had no reason to fear Joseph. He had no vendetta in his heart. But even good men die. Verse 22 tells us that Joseph lived out his remaining years in Egypt. He got to see three generations of Ephraim's children. So that would be all of his grandchildren. And he got to see Manasseh's children of whom Makir, M-A-K-I-R, was his oldest, verse 23. And like Jacob before him, he gave orders to his family, verse 25, you must carry my bones up from this place. He died at age 110, and after being embalmed, he was housed in a coffin in Egypt, verse 26. And then in the Exodus... Four centuries later, get this, four centuries later, we read Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Exodus 13, verse 19. How'd you like to be responsible for remembering something that was said four centuries ago? And then you carry it out. There are some tremendous lessons here from Jacob and Joseph's death. Number one, death is but the means of gathering us to our people. Think of it. This was Moses' way of telling us that Jacob died. Verse 33 of chapter 49, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and was gathered to his people. 
We've already noted that this expression, gathered to his people, is a Hebraism. That is, it's a figure of speech in Hebrew language indicating Jacob died. But that said, there's certainly words in Hebrew that say simply, so-and-so died. Genesis 5, verse 5. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. There's the Hebrew word. Hebrews, first Genesis 5, 5. And it's repeated for all the others that are listed in that genealogy. Enosh, Kenan, Jared, Methuselah. After many years of living, they die. That's it. That's what it says. Or we read, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is to Bethlehem. Genesis 35 verse 19. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. Genesis 1, verse 6. The Hebrew word is used 1169 times in the Old Testament. And it means to lose one's life. Simple. It's found in the first warning of God. Genesis three seventeen. When you eat of it, that is the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. The life loss was spiritual instantly and physically eventually. So this phrase, used of Jacob and so many others in the Old Testament, gathered to his people certainly indicates death but with more of an emphasis on being gathered together with others think of that a gathering um, an assembly a union a reunion So not just losing life, but of joining with a select group titled, My People. It's used only 140 times in scripture, the phrase, gather to my people. And although the patriarchs made reference to their bones being taken back to Canaan, buried in the burial plat, from the Hittites by Abraham. This too is not the meaning of the phrase gathered to his people. Many family members share an earthly burial plot, but in the eternal world, they are not always the people to whom the departed are gathered. The writer of Hebrews clarifies things for us. Speaking of the patriarchs, Jacob would be one of those patriarchs. All these people, I'm reading scripture, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Hmm. 
And people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, verse 13 and following. Peter refers to believers in this way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. There it is. Wow. A people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, once you were not a people... I'm still reading scripture. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. Death for Jacob, death for Joseph, death for all the patriarchs and fellow believers is not simply the cessation of life but more intently another person going home going home the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12 you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and following. Death is but the winnowing fork to gather us with all fellow believers who have gone on before us where you will be an alien and a stranger no more. Wow. Then we need to learn, too, that there is such a thing, and I'm calling it a sinner's remorse, which can plague all of us, all of our lives, till we repent and believe. Have you noticed that after Joseph's brothers knew that Joseph was alive and well, they were repeatedly consumed with fear? At the first disclosure, we read, his brothers were terrified at his presence. Chapter 45, verse 3. And it took some serious persuasion 
on Joseph's part to convince them that no harm would come to them. He had to go to great lengths, attributing his journey to Egypt, not to the brothers who had sold him into slavery, but it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Chapter 45, verse 5 through 7. Boy, I'll tell you what, Joseph had an idea, the right idea, of who was controlling his life. It wasn't his brother's. Moses writes, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. And the years of his life were 147. Genesis 47, verse 28. 17 years have passed with Joseph's brothers living peacefully with him in the Goshen area of the Nile River. But as soon as Jacob died and was buried in Canaan, our text says, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, <clears throat> What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Uh, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you uh, to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, uh, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. Genesis 50, verse 15 and following. Now this tells me, it tells me, 17 years have not convinced Joseph's brothers that Joseph has truly forgiven them for their treachery. 17 years of living peacefully with Joseph has not assured them that true and lasting reconciliation had concurred and they need not fear reprisals from Joseph. 17 years. Seventeen years has not persuaded them that Joseph's promises are genuine in and of themselves and not because he was trying to please his father. Father's gone now, so... We're in for it. Brethren, this is the power of guilt over past sin. It is. It is sinner's remorse. A remorse that issues from not believing and not accepting the truth that God, and in the case of wrongs done by others, people can be and are willing to forgive. And so we walk on edge from people whom we have hurt. And our relationship with God is strained. 
We do not seek his wisdom for our troubles. Our prayer life suffers. Every time sin is mentioned from the pulpit, we slip into a blue slump. Satan uses our memory to rub our noses into our past failures. Take this, take that. See? And joyful Christian living eludes us and it depresses us. And that depression can be severe. What was the problem with Joseph's brothers? Well, it's this. They did not believe him when he said to all that they were forgiven and they should rejoice in God, that God had sent him on ahead of them to preserve their lives and the lives of thousands of others with that great famine that was waiting in the wings. Now, it was the truth. But they did not believe Joseph could be that forgiving <laughs> and that understanding. I don't know. This is, oh my, this is a real stretch. 17 years later, and they still don't believe him. It is the same stubborn unbelief that damns many people to hell. God in the gospel promises mercy. He promises forgiveness to all who will repent of their sin and trust Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. What does the Bible say about all the descendants of Jacob's sons who came out of Egypt in the Exodus? but stood at the entrance to the promised land, refusing to enter. Remember that? Let me read it for you. As just has been said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What rebellion? Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he, God, angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if it was not to those who disobeyed? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. <laughs> Brethren, that's the nature of their disobedience. Hebrews 3, verse 15 and following. And with that unbelief, they sealed their own fate. And they put it this way. Faith pleases God. Unbelief angers God. Faith and repentance is the key that unlocks the gates to the promised land. And unbelief and rebellion are the bars that ban entrance. 
So I beg you, please, no sinner's remorse here. Believe God. Who said there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, the first four verses. We really have to get a grasp of this. We sing a hymn, it's called Jesus Paid It All, All to Him I Owe. But do we believe it? There are religious organizations the world over, unlike Christianity and their modus operandi, the way they work. It is a works religion. I gotta pay God for my salvation. I gotta live a certain way, say a certain way, and so forth. I gotta help God. Yeah. I know about salvation came through Christ, but and I've heard people say this, but I had to believe. In other words, uh, there's no salvation from God unless I do my part. I have to believe, don't I? You have no concept that the faith they exercise in believing the gospel is a gift of God it is not human faith it's spiritual faith it comes from the spirit the gift of the spirit is what faith love so forth that's a gift which means they didn't have it before the spirit gave it but I had to believe yeah but it was God's grace that gave you that faith we are beholden to God from start to finish for our salvation. And it began in eternity past. Believe it or not, the scripture says your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. That boggles the mind. It so stretches credulity that we think, I can't wrap my head around that one. To think that you were a thought in God's mind before the world was created. And that he destined you to become his child. Let me tell you, that's grace. That's mercy. When you think of all the billions of people that have been born in the world. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you.
Men like Jacob, men like Joseph, tell us and remind us that we are chosen by you, loved by you. We are not an afterthought, nor is our salvation based on our performance. Oh, Lord, help us get away from that one. All the religions in the world, with the exception of true Christianity, all the religions in the world are based on performance. Before performance by the recipient. Now, if they were bragging on God and his performance, that would be one thing, but that's not what's going on in the religions of the world. They're bragging on the fact that they have a part. And that part is essential. And so there is a bit of internal pride, if not external, and a confidence in self-assertiveness, not upon pure grace. Lord, if that's our notion this morning, please remove it from us. Help us to see that God's grace gives us the faith to believe and draws us through repentance to Jesus, the Savior, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. I don't have the closing hymn. Someone have it? Eighty-nine in what book? Brown. Okay.
Our Lord, the scripture says of you that you are a friend that sticks closer to us than a brother. And we thank you for that. Even when we disappoint you, even when we sin against your law, your word, you don't desert us, but you grant us repentance and faith that we might again be reconciled to you. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the day today. Thank you for fathers, godly fathers, that have set the uh, pattern for their families and have attempted to raise their children in the fear and admonition of Christ, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. No service tonight.